0: There. Welcome to Women at the Table. I'm your host, Karen King. Please join me and my guests as we explore the many perils of patriarchy, male privilege, positional power, and the state of feminism in the 21st century. It's Women's History Month, and as we spend the month celebrating and acknowledging women's often underrecognized accomplishments and contributions to humanity, it seems appropriate to take a look back and look forward from women's suffrage to the current state of feminism in the 21st century. And what better way to reflect on the past and speculate on the future than to have our very first guest historian, Victoria Walcott, professor of history at the University at Buffalo, join us. Dr. Walcott is the author of Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement, which reveals the unexplored impact of utopian thought on the major figures of the civil rights movement. Dr. Walcott makes clear that the idealism and pragmatism of the civil rights movement were grounded in nothing less than an intensely utopian yearning. Key figures of the time from Martin Luther King Jr. and Pauli Murray to Father Devine and Howard Thurman all shared a belief in a radical pacifism that was both specifically utopian and deeply engaged in changing the current conditions of the existing world. Living in the Future recasts the various strains of mid-20th century civil rights activism in a utopian light, revealing the power of dreaming in a profound and concrete fashion, one that can be emulated in other times that are desperate for change, like today. Welcome, Victoria Walcott.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's wonderful to talk to you today.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you as our very first guest on Women at the Table. And as I mentioned, it is Women's History Month, and we often reflect back on the suffragists and the trajectory from that movement, the 19th century movement, to the 20th century movements of the second wave of feminism, to what we're looking at right now in the 21st century. So I would imagine that the early suffragists may have been thought of as engaging in utopian thought, thinking and promoting the idea that women were entitled to the same rights and privileges as men. When you reflect back on those early stages of that movement, what do you think were the key factors in propelling its resiliency?
1: Um, I think there's a number of ways to approach that question. I, I think to, to talk about sort first wave feminism and certainly 19th century feminism as being related to utopianism is absolutely correct. Um, and in fact, many of the feminists uh, were involved in, in New York state in what we call the burnt over district which was also areas that had a lot of utopian uh, fervent. So places like Oneida, for example. Uh, And they were often involved in some of those conversations in those religious movements. Um, But they also imagined a world of greater, not only gender equality, but racial equality, many of them were involved in the abolitionist movement. So if you think about, for example, the Seneca Falls meeting in 1848 and the women who went there and were involved um, in that particular sort of meeting. That gets a little bit more complicated when you get to the early 20th century. Uh, There were serious divisions, particularly between African-American and white suffragists in the late 19th and early 20th century where black women were very engaged in the suffrage movement but had to often do so in separate organizations. So that was one of the weaknesses of of first wave um, feminism as well. But again, they did have a sort of utopian vision of a greater, uh, more more equal um, society and a society where women could fully be themselves.
0: Right, and you brought up some of the limitations and failures of of those early suffrage movements. And yes, the idea that white feminism was the prevailing ideology is still somewhat saliently part of the struggle and certainly seemed to be during the second wave as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that intersection of the movement and and the role that white feminism and white privilege played in, to some degree, I would say, hindering uh, the movement?
1: Yeah, so in terms of first wave feminism and suffrage in particular, there were some white women who made the argument that um, particularly white women deserve the vote when you have a situation where African-American men, at least those who live outside the South, had access to the vote, where recent immigrant men from say Southern and Eastern Europe had the vote. And so they did make somewhat white supremacist arguments about the need for white women to essentially offset those men of color. So that was was the argument that was deeply uh, problematic in that late 19th and early 20th century um, period. Uh, There is a lot more scholarship now on the numbers of not only African American women, but other women of color who were engaged in the suffrage movement and carrying out their own struggles, you know, despite this limitation. Um, There also could have been more work on the part of white suffragists after the vote, after 1919, to ensure that African-American women living in the South had access to the vote. That was something that one might have imagined would be the next step for them, and and it most definitely was not for the most part. I'm thinking here of particularly the National Women's Party uh, with Alice Paul um, at its head. So you do definitely see those kinds of racial tensions uh, emerging again with second wave feminism, which is the period that we think of as the 60s and into the 1970s as well. Um, where there was basically different kinds of agendas uh, between working class women, more middle class women, women of color, white women, that sometimes limited their ability to kind of create real solidarities across racial and class lines. Although not entirely, they often did as well.
0: And you really don't see that kind of activism in terms of securing the vote until the civil rights movement of, of the late 50s and 60s.
1: Yeah, so one cannot understate the importance of the Civil Rights Movement, what we call these days the long Civil Rights Movement, that it starts in the 1930s and lasts well into the 1970s. We can't understate the power and the importance of that movement for influencing really every other 20th century social movement and many of the women who were deeply engaged in civil rights, both white and black. So thinking about African-American women, somebody like Pauli Murray might be a name that people are familiar with, but white women as well who were engaged in civil rights, particularly uh, with the organization called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, were doing all sorts of important work in the movement, but were also frustrated by the limitations of their gender roles. They were often given clerical duties, Or, you know, the sort of domestic duties within the movement, and they felt that they were not being treated as fully equal. And that's really where consciousness raising comes out of. These these female activists started to talk to each other, to raise their own consciousness about the gender roles, not only in the movement itself, but also growing up during the Cold War, what they had experienced, sharing those experiences, and out of that comes a real second-wave feminist agenda.
0: What I like to call the the persistence of, of patriarchy. Um, yes, in spite of being engaged in social justice activity, still dealing with gendered roles in terms of the assignments of tasks and work and the value attached to it.
1: Yes, absolutely. And even the most radical pacifist groups, some of which I study in my work, who really fully believed and they talked about gender equality, but yet they still assigned these secondary roles to the female pacifist. Um, and really also kind of celebrated a certain kind of bravado of male activism, you know, dangerous activism where they're on the front lines, Um, and often women were excluded from those front lines, and that was over time very frustrating to them. So let's just step back
0: for a moment. Why do you think Patriarchy has remained so saliently in place while we are experiencing and have experienced a considerable amount of enfranchisement. Certainly, you know, winning or getting the the right to vote, entering into the political sphere, and certainly in the uh, work sphere and the the split of public private, but more women going out into the workplace. But yet we're still looking at a gender wage gap. Uh, we just uh, noted women's equal pay day back on on march 15th and of course during women's history month a lot of these conversations are brought to the fore and then once women's history month ends they usually go back to the back burner but what is it about the uh saliency of patriarchy
1: well i think there's sort of two elements both private and also sort of public or structural elements that are involved Uh, And out of the consciousness raising groups, a lot of that private kind of complaints and anger that women were feeling about their unequal gender relationships within the home, um, about questions of sexual harassment and sexual abuse and rape, uh, access to healthcare, those became very, very important issues. Um, But there's also sort of an economic and political structure that had been laid down, you know, across centuries that's very difficult to dismantle. Uh, And you think about this in the post-war cold war period, You know, women's jobs were advertised separately in the newspapers. Uh, They were paid very significantly less than men. Um, They were explicitly excluded from some professions. They didn't have access to things like credit or credit cards. They couldn't own property in their own names in some cases. And this lasts until and through second wave feminism. So it's going to take, there's, you know, residual effects of those uh, structural inequalities that we live with today. Um, and I think also maybe at the base of a lot of this, and I've been thinking about this a lot during COVID, is what some people call the care crisis, which really become, was revealed during COVID in a much more stark way than it had previously, the enormous amount of unpaid and low paid labor that women engage with within our society. Um, and that's, that's absolutely central to the way patriarchy works.
0: Right. And I think, right, the division of labor became even more pronounced during the pandemic. And right, the crisis care, absolutely the care in in terms of the uh, delegation of duty and responsibility still resting squarely, primarily on women's shoulders.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a a major issue. It's an issue that the early feminists talked about um, and it just continues on again, it crosses class and race as well. It's something that the, you know, the broader society really needs to grapple with. Although, of course, low-income women um, have much more of a burden than upper-income women do when it comes to care.
0: And apparently it
1: crosses over time,
0: because it yes. seems to be yes. an a, 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 a argument or a discussion that, that seems to be with us all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so let me ask you, um, do you think are we at a moment right now where there is potential to pivot into something more egalitarian and more equitable in terms of how we handle care in our country?
1: I do see some changes in conversations around policy, which I, I uh, have been surprised by. So if you go back to the 1990s and you, 1996, you had the Personal Responsibility Act, which got rid of the welfare system, right? The AFDC, the older welfare system. And there was a lot of discussion during that period and this cross partisan lines, you know, basically blaming particularly African American women but low-income women for being quote unquote dependent on welfare, and that welfare had this kind of pathologizing impact on their lives. Um, and switch to now, uh, much of that rhetoric has been dissipated. And you really do see recognition that a way to address some of these issues is through things like a guaranteed income um, or direct payment to low-income families that has a direct positive impact on children uh, and their parents. And that's, I think, a a sort of interesting uh, solution to what's long been a kind of gendered issue around kind of questions about, about welfare. So that's a little bit new. I think also we have a shifting and really interesting situation with the labor movement Here, um, certainly with the, the, you know, the pushes for higher minimum wages across the country, now locally and now nationally, the Starbucks Union, which people might see as, you know, not that big of a deal, but it's a pretty big sea change to have that kind of unionization effort, and that actually reminds me um, in the early 20th century, There were explicitly feminist labor unions. The most famous one was the ILGWU or the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union. And they were calling for what they call bread and roses. Right, They were calling for not only higher wages for women workers and for low-income workers, but also for them to have a quality of life, uh, time to spend with their families, support for their families, time for leisure, the roses part of bread and roses. And I would love to see that as this sort of new labor movement emerges, some of those issues I think are beginning to be talked about and addressed in the public sphere in a way that I have not seen in the last few decades.
0: So do you think it's in part attributable to to the pandemic Um, and and really just a total breakdown of safety net and support services that, you know, we took for granted for years. And perhaps to what degree there is a next generation ushering in new ideas around work and life, and as you say, and leisure and quality of life.
1: Yeah, I think both those things are absolutely true. The pandemic basically uncovered, revealed this ongoing crisis that had been largely hidden uh, you know, unless you're deeply involved in the field, largely hidden from the American public, made starkly evident. And then you have the great resignation. But I think it's definitely the case that younger people are less willing to, you know, take on work that is going to basically not allow them to live fuller lives, whether that's lives with their children and caring for them, or, you know, broader communities. And so they are, in many ways, I think, leading the way in, in ways that are, are very helpful. Um, I think also there is um, since the I, I want to say end of the Cold War, I realize right now it's possible we're entering into a new Cold War. But uh, certainly, you know, ideas about, say, cooperatives or guaranteed incomes, these sort of notions were, you know, really labeled during the Cold War era as just too left wing, right, potentially communist, socialistic. Uh, And some of that stigma seems to have not gone away entirely, but dissipated to some extent, so that some of those ideas have become more mainstream. And I think you see that here in Buffalo. You see cooperatives, you know, all over the place, including on the east side, developing other sort of innovative strategies to deal with questions of housing, uh, questions of poverty that are very grassroots in orientation, and I think very imaginative as well. And what role do you see feminism or feminist
0: action playing in this this next wave or this next iteration of of social justice movements?
1: Yes, I think it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out um, in this sort of new wave. Uh, I think it's notable that the uh, major sort of initial organizers of the Black Lives Matter movement were all women of color. I think that's very significant, and you see women of color in in major positions uh, in these social justice movements across the board. So that that is certainly a shift. Reproductive rights is back, unfortunately, back on the front burner for for many Americans and and obviously for women in particular with the changing Supreme Court and the state laws uh, that are being passed as well restricting reproductive rights. So that too becomes part of this. And then climate change. I mean, a lot of young women are are very active uh, in the movement in climate change, and many of these movements also intersect with each other. So no longer is environmentalism something that, you know, elite whites are interested in because they want to preserve the wilderness, but now it's being talked about in terms of, you know, what's happening to low-income communities, how are they being impacted by things like traffic, you know, particulate matter, et cetera. So th- there's much more intersectionality uh, between these movements than maybe there have been certainly in the 60s and, and early 70s. And feminism you know, should be absolutely part of that. And I think it is to some, at least to some extent.
0: Well, you mentioned intersectionality, which has now become a mainstream buzzword, and it wasn't really a term you heard too much outside of the academy, but it has really been embraced by the popular culture. Talk a little bit about the, the importance or or the, the impact of intersectionality and, and certainly intersectional feminism will have on, on these movements.
1: I think it helps to address and perhaps prevent reproduction of some of the particularly racial divisions but also class divisions of first and second wave feminism. Uh, so one of the things I mentioned consciousness raising a few times and that was a very powerful and actually remains a powerful tool to allow women to be in a safe space to share their experiences and to work out an agenda moving forward um, based on those experiences. But it also can be exclusionary. So if you're, you know, the only working class woman or the only Puerto Rican woman in that room, your experiences might be different. Your um, your priorities might be different than an upper middle class white woman. So that's that's a tactic that you know intersectionality can try to address and kind of expand upon to think about that, you know, different groups do have different agendas, but they're also things they have in common. And there needs to be a lot of listening, a lot of consensus building, a lot of networking, a lot of sort of patient work. And I'm particularly, again, impressed by the Black Lives Matter movement, which is an interracial movement for also being one that is not uh, reproducing a kind of hierarchy, right? Um, there is, it's really all about local leadership and, and grassroots organizing, which is very much taking the very best of the protest tradition from the long civil rights movement and applying it to today.
0: So you're on the front lines in terms of your, your connection or your contact with young people, you're a professor and you Mm -hmm. teach primarily undergraduate students? Both, both undergraduates and graduates. Yeah. So, what are you hearing and what are are your perceptions uh, uh, in terms of how this generation of students understands the relevancy of feminism?
1: That's a great question. My students are often shocked when I talk about how recently it was difficult for women to, for example, get a credit card or how recently you know, ads in the newspaper for jobs were uh, sorted by gender. But that wasn't something from the 19th century, that was something from you know, the 1960s and, and early 1970s. Uh, so, so part of one of the things that's gratifying about teaching is, is you know exposing this longer history and, and giving them a, a better sense of how structural, how deep these kinds of inequalities are in American history. And, and it also gives them a sense of how much things have changed. So going forward, hopefully gives them a a bit of hope for the future. Uh, You know, I haven't asked a class recently, whether how many people consider themselves feminists. I used to do that. So I should probably do that again. I mean, I think that there's that, you know, young people today, as I'm sure people uh, know, have much more of a sense of fluidity in terms of gender and sexuality. You know, I have students who identify as binary and other identities that weren't categories, you know, for in my own vocabulary, you know, a decade ago, or certainly longer ago than that. So that's a, that's been a huge shift in the way that women's studies, gender and sexuality studies has embraced, again, a more kind of fluid and more expansive idea about what gender is. And that's very important to this, these students. And um, it's something that they actually care a lot about. So I've, I've worked really hard to be not only sensitive to that, but also to talk to them about the history of that as well.
0: And let's not forget the, the brilliant bell hooks reminded us all that feminism is for everybody.
1: Yes, bell hooks is, is one of my absolute most favorite writers and, and very much somebody who kind of embraced a utopian perspective as well.
0: But the idea of feminism as something, as not just an ideological framework, but a way of understanding the way the world works and the way of organizing social justice movements that include the entire spectrum of how people identify.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And that our non-hierarchical, and, and where the care work is shared in a kind of communal way. And I think there's a lot of attention to that. I think all of that is definitely, you know, something that can be brought into any movement.
0: So do you get a sense that movements have somewhat of a, a cyclical lifespan? I mean, it seems like we're, we're having a lot of the same conversations we had years ago, but, you know, in a different context, but still the root seems to be intact.
1: Yeah. So generally historians don't like the cyclical theories, but I definitely understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, movements emerging as a responses to particular kinds of crises. And I think that for our own time, you know, starting with the financial crisis of, of 2008, and then the, the more the public recognition of mass incarceration, and then the increased um, number of or at least publicity around the uh, police violence and, and the killing of so many young African Americans. That kind of going into the present moment with the twin crises of the pandemic and climate change. Uh, that has sort of led to these, I think, big intersectional movements, which are which can, I think, have real potential to be transformative.
0: Which make it uniquely different than what has come in the past,
1: perhaps? There's some, there are some differences. So I would say, for example, thinking about, again, to go back to the racial justice protests. Uh, They are, the protests that emerged two years ago after the murder of George Floyd were significantly more interracial than the protests of, say, the 1960s. Now, in that period, in that period of the civil rights movement, of course, there were white activists who were involved in the movement, but they were a small minority. And if you look at the amount of support people had for, white people had for those racial justice protests you know, a couple years ago, and, and some of that is diminished, but not entirely. And even just the people on the streets, that's a sea change, that's a that's a profound change. And I, I think that's a, a hopeful change um, as well. So that's one way in which it's different. Obviously there's other things, including technology, of course, that make these movements a bit different as well.
0: Interesting. So I, I wasn't aware that historians didn't like cyclical theory. So, so you, <laughs> you, you've educated me in that. Well, and some I of them do, it. but. <laughs> That, that's an important point to dis, of distinction. So, let me ask you um, in, in reference to, to your latest book about utopian uh, communities and civil rights, this idea of dreaming in profound and concrete ways. What do you see as the role of that process in reimagining feminist movement and action for the 21st century?
1: Yeah, so what I I think is really interesting about utopian thought and practice is this idea of the power of imagination. And it's sometimes talked about as a kind of prefigurative politics, meaning that activists in the period that I study, but you see it today as well, are essentially living and living the life that they want to see envisioned. Another way to think about it is means and ends so that they not just looking at the end, they, you know, what the future should look like, but they're trying to use the means to get there that reflect their values, right? So they might be living communally. They might be setting up cooperatives or doing some other kinds of alternative sorts of strategies, but this power of imagination, I think is a really important tool in a toolkit for thinking about what the future might look like. Uh, And it requires not just a kind of narrow, looking at a single issue, but it requires linking together a variety of issues, including absolutely central um, gender equality and feminism. Uh, So if you're trying to imagine a future that you see as a perfect future, right? You're not just thinking about healthcare or climate or racial equality and racial justice Or economic equality, or gender equality, you're actually trying to think about all how all those things inter interlock and interlink um, when you're imagining that future. So that's, I think, a very powerful tool, and you do see, you know, you do see people talking about this today in ways that are interesting.
0: Let me just close by asking you this idea of the practical, of the concrete. Mm -hmm. Often we think of higher education and the academy as a place where theory lives in, in, in somewhat of a, a bubble? And then how do you take that insight and turn it into or transform it into something that has a practicality to it?
1: I think that's a very important uh, role for the humanities in particular to play, that the humanities aren't something that's you know, studied up there in the ivory tower, but that have a direct applicable use, um, not only in social movements, but in other kinds of societal changes. So I I absolutely see that to be the case in the work in terms of as a historian of social movements and a historian of kind of social history. You know, I I used the example before about the early 20th century labor movement and the idea of bread and roses that these uh, feminist labor organizers had. Well, that's something that is, you know, in the past that could very much be a model and I think is emerging as a model for a future labor movement. So that's just one, one concrete example but yes, I mean, the role of the humanities more generally should absolutely be engaged in kind of questions of practical change and be able to use language that is accessible to you know, people who are not in academia um, and who you know, are interested in, in the past, um, but also interested in kind of creating a new future.
0: Well said. So that, that intersection of the theoretical and the practical.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I, so, of course, the criticism of utopian thought is that it's impractical. It actually means quite literally no place, utopia. But I would argue that, you know, you can use the sort of imaginative or sort of dreaming about what the future might be in a very pragmatic and practical way. And that's what the activists who I studied and wrote about did.
0: So as we close, just a a note about Women's History Month. What's your take on celebratory months for women? Do you think it it has a place and and is that relevant?
1: You know, that's so interesting. I think I, like many historians, have somewhat mixed feelings about the celebratory month. So the, the most obvious, you know, the most obvious criticism of both Black History Month and Women's History Month is, you know, every month should be those months. There should not be, you know, special months set aside. However, having said that, Those months do allow historians, but other voices that maybe aren't ordinarily heard um, to be be heard in the media in particular. And so it does allow a kind of assertive, you know, voicing of a set of ideas and opinions and, and historical facts that otherwise might get lost, you know. So I'm basically for it, but I certainly understand the criticisms as well.
0: Spoken very, very diplomatically, like like a a historian. Victoria Walcott, I want to thank you for joining us on our inaugural program of Women at the Table, and I want to encourage everyone out there to check out uh, Professor Walcott's latest book, Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. And thank you so much, and happy Women's History Month. Happy Women's History Month to you and, and to everybody else as well. Thank you. And thank you to all of you out there for joining us and I look forward to our next program. This is Women at the Table and I'm your host, Karen King. Thanks for listening to Women at the Table from Buffalo Rising and Local Matters Studio. We'll be back soon with more episodes where we will continue to discuss the many perils of patriarchy, male privilege, positional power, and the state of feminism in the 21st century. Today's show is engineered by Addison Schoonmaker. Make sure you subscribe to the show. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. In addition to the podcast, check out buffalorising.com where we celebrate the best of Buffalo, one story at a time.